Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Thanks, Joe, for leading us in prayer. So, Joe just prayed for our children. Parents, you can dismiss your children now uh, for Children's Church if you wish to do that. Uh, allows them to get an age-appropriate lesson during the sermon. They'll be brought back at the conclusion of the sermon. Kids can head back to the center door. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. And we're going to be looking um, at chapter 27, basically chapter 27. This morning, if you don't have a Bible uh, as usual... There are paperback Bibles in front of you, underneath one of the chairs. You can grab one of those and find the passage on page 12. Uh, I think we'll really help you to get more out of these sermons if you have a Bible open before you. So I recommend that. Most of you, I think, are familiar with uh, a guy named Winston Churchill. Uh, Churchill was... uh, One of the greatest leaders of the 20th century, a guy who is credited with um, having an instrumental role in leading the Allied forces to defeat Nazi Germany in World War II. Um, This is a man that has the highest respect of um, all of us. We're very grateful for his service. Uh, Many would say that he was uh, one of the the chief reasons why the Allies won and the Nazis lost. But one thing that people maybe don't know about Winston Churchill is that his his life, his political life and professional life leading up to the time of the start of World War II was littered with failures. I mean, he made one policy mistake after another. He, he was responsible for um, a lot of moves and decisions that people generally regarded as uh, very poor. And so, in fact, when uh, Churchill was warning the world about the rise of Adolf Hitler before Hitler was really uh, as powerful as he came to be, Churchill was trying to warn people, and most of the world didn't listen to him. And the reason why is he had such a poor track record, they thought he had no credibility. That They thought... If Churchill thinks Hitler's going to be a problem, that probably means Hitler won't be a problem. Because we've seen this guy's mistakes and bad moves over the years. Just an amazing story. A guy whose life was filled with mistakes, and then he's raised up to do something incredible. You you might be here today um, carrying the heavy burden of a lot of mistakes that you've made in your life. Maybe mistakes you've made just this past week, mistakes you've made in the way you've talked to your spouse, mistakes that you've made in the way you've raised your children, mistakes that you've made as an employee in the way you've treated your boss, mistakes you've made as a boss in the way you've treated your employees, and you're wondering, will anything good come of these mistakes? Have I ruined my life? You might be thinking today. Uh, the story of Churchill gives us some, some hope. He made lots of mistakes. He was used in a mighty and powerful way, but I want to tell you that the Scriptures will give you even more hope when you consider this issue, because in the Bible, what we see over and over again, in particular in the Old Testament, what we see are stories of how God takes the bad things that people do 
and turns them into good things. That's one way to describe the whole Bible story. People do bad things, God takes those things and uses them for good purposes. And that's what we're going to see here this morning in this passage in Genesis 27. Let me give you some context, okay? I've done this before in the last couple of weeks, and I'll probably keep doing this throughout the study of uh, the life of Jacob. That's what we're doing, by the way, looking at the life of Jacob in the book of Genesis in this sermon series. Um, But you really have to understand the context of the flow of the Old Testament to make any sense out of these sometimes unusual and strange stories that we're reading. You have to understand what came before and what's coming after in order to really get them. And so, uh, just as a a reminder, God made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to uh, produce many, many descendants from you, and your descendants are going to turn into this great nation, and from this great nation is going to come a great Savior, and all the world is going to be blessed. It's a promise of the gospel and a promise of God developing the nation of Israel from whom will come Jesus Christ. And so that's the promise made to Abraham, but Abraham lived a long, 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 long time ago, and it took many, many centuries for Jesus to arrive on the scene. And so the promise to Abraham ends up flowing through um, various uh, lines of descendants. And so what I've said to you before is that we, we can think of an ungodly line of descendants and a godly line of descendants. So the godly line of descendants is the line of descendants from whom Jesus will come. So Abraham marries Sarah, Sarah and Abraham give birth to Isaac. Isaac, that's misspelled, by the way, isn't it? I-S-S-A-C. It should be I-S-A-A-C. Um, <clears throat> Isaac is in the godly line. Ishmael isn't. Even though Ishmael was born to Abraham and Hagar, Ishmael is in the ungodly line. Isaac is in the godly line. Well, then Isaac and Rebekah get married, and they have these two children, Jacob and Esau. But Jacob is in the godly line, and Esau is in the ungodly line, because it's through Jacob that will come the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those tribes is Judah, and from Judah comes Jesus Christ. So the godly line goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesus. But there's these ungodly lines also. And what we'll find when we read the Scripture, here's the peculiar thing, is that when we're reading the Scripture, what we'll find is these people in the godly line are not very godly. And it just kind of messes with us. And and in fact, sometimes we'll see the ungodly, the people in the ungodly line, and they are kind of godly. And they do things that we tend to admire. Esau um, is not in the godly line, but we're, we're going to see Esau do some good things, and we're going to have sympathy for him. Um, and, and so this really shouldn't surprise us, I guess, because even today you, you'll notice sometimes that Christians don't act very godly. And you might even notice that sometimes the non-Christian people that you know seem to have more honesty and integrity than, than maybe you feel like you have or that the Christians that you know uh, have. And, and so how, how do we... How do we make sense of this? This is kind of strange, isn't it? Um, So that's what we're going to be thinking about today, when the godly are ungodly. And so in this passage, we we see um, these pictures of people in the godly line not acting very godly, Isaac, Rebekah, and and Jacob. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. Those are our our three points, just looking at Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob. This is a long passage again, and so I'm not going to read the whole thing at once. I'm just going to read this in portions. So if you're able to stand, please do so. 
And um, I'm going to start at the end of chapter 26, because that's where we left off last week. 26.34 is where I'll start. <clears throat> and for the first point, I'll just read to verse 4 of chapter 27. So, 26.34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, the older son, and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. We'll stop there for now. God in heaven, we pray. Holy Spirit, please come. Please open our eyes, soften our hearts. Let us behold wonderful things in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> okay, so what do we do when the godly are ungodly? We're going to kind of focus in on some of the ungodly behavior of these three people who are in the godly line, these people from whom the Messiah Jesus will one day come. And so let's first of all think of the ungodliness of Isaac, okay? So we see verse 1, Isaac is old. And if we back up to verse 34 of 26, chapter 26, you see when Esau was 40 years old, so that's kind of setting this in time. Esau actually was born when Isaac was 60. We learned that from a previous verse. So do the math, 60 plus 40 is 100, so Isaac is about 100 years old at this time. And so he comments that he doesn't know the day of his death, but he's getting old, he's anticipating it might not be too far away. And so it occurs to Isaac that he needs to take care of some, some business, just like uh, older people, if you get to a point you haven't gotten your will uh, together or your advanced directive. It's like, okay, it's time to do business. I'm not sure when I'm going to die. I've got to get ready for my death. That's kind of what Isaac is thinking here. And um, what he needs to do is make sure that the blessing given to him by his father Abraham is passed on to his son. So the blessing that I just ex uh, explained to you, this promise given to Abraham was passed on from Abraham to Isaac. Abraham's been deceased for a while. Now Isaac's about to die, so Isaac's got to pass it on to his son. But the peculiar thing here is the son that Isaac calls to himself. If you look at verse 1, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, Isaac's going blind or is blind, he called Esau his older son. And so the writer makes sure that we are reminded that Esau is the older son, and that's the one that Isaac is calling to himself, the older son, not the younger son. The younger son is Jacob. The older son is Esau. Take note, he's calling the older son. Why is that significant? <clears throat> well, remember back in chapter 25, God spoke to Rebekah, when Rebekah was pregnant with Esau and Jacob in her womb, 
And God said, two nations are in your womb, Rebekah, two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. Who's the older? The older is Esau. Who's the younger? Jacob. Esau is going to serve Jacob. In other words, the one that Isaac should be calling to himself in order to pass on the blessing is not Esau, but Jacob. So what is Esau doing here? I mean, what's, what's going on? I mean, th- this is, I'm, I'm maybe reading into it just a little bit, but I think it's fair to assume that Isaac knew about this promise. I mean, this is a promise God gave to his own wife about twins that his own wife was about to have. God spoke to her and gave her this grand statement. I think it's pretty safe to assume Isaac knew that. Isaac knew this promise. Isaac knew that the blessing should go to Jacob. But it seems like what Isaac thought to himself is, yeah, I know that's what God wants, but it's not what I want, and I'm going to do it my way. Not very godly, is it? I'm going to do this my way. I like Esau better. I've never really had much fondness for Jacob. Isaac favors Esau. The text tells us back in 25, 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we got these two parents, Isaac and Rebekah, playing favorites with their children. And their favoritism seems to <clears throat> rise up and interfere even with their understanding of God's blessings. But here in this passage, we get a clue about why it is that Isaac loved Esau, why it is that Isaac favored Esau. Why? Because of his game. That is because Esau, you might recall when he was described, Jacob is the introvert, likes to stay home and cook. Esau is the one who goes out in the field and hunts. And he slays these animals and he brings them home and he prepares them. He prepares this delicious food. That's why Isaac loves Esau. And so if we go back to our text in chapter 27, you see this playing out. He calls Esau to himself, verse 2, and he says, I'm old, I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, Go out in the field, Esau, and hunt some game for me. Do what you do, Esau. You are so good at hunting, and you bring home the best animals, and and I want you to prepare delicious food for me, the kind I love, so that I can eat. (laughs) You know, you kind of get this picture of Isaac as this guy sitting at a table. He's probably really overweight, and he's got his bib on, and his fork, and his knife, and his hands, and he's waiting for his food. Isaac, go get me some food. I've always loved you, Esau, because you're so good at filling my stomach. I mean, it's not the most flattering picture, is it, of Esau, of Isaac. Not only is Isaac apparently kind of forgetting the promise of God, maybe he's forgotten the promise, maybe he's rebelling against the promise, but it's a pretty big promise. But not only that, he seems to be ruled by his appetite, ruled by his his stomach. But something that we always have to keep in mind, one thing when we're looking at these Old Testament stories, if you can go to the New Testament and find a New Testament passage that comments on the Old Testament passage, that's really important to pay attention to, because the New Testament's going to give us an accurate interpretation of the Old. And actually, we look at Hebrews 11, and we see that it says this, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. So the writer to the Hebrews seems to be commending Isaac 
This is the hall of faith, right, in chapter 11. It's all these examples of all these people who acted and walked in faith. So, how do we make sense of this? It, it, it seems like what's happening here is that, yes, Hebrews is saying that Isaac should be commended because he did act in faith. That is, he did believe in the Abrahamic promise. He did believe that God was going to fulfill the promise He made to Abraham, that a great nation was going to come from Abraham, and a Messiah was going to come from that nation. To some degree, he believed that, and that's why he wanted to pass on this blessing. But the problem is, is he's giving the right blessing to the wrong person. And he's allowing his personal biases and preferences to get in the way. He's blessing his favorite son rather than God's chosen son. And so what we have here is this combination. Isaac is a combination. He is a guy who's rebelling against God's word on the one hand, ruled by his appetite perhaps on the other, but also a God who has kind of a basic faith and trust in what God has promised to do. And it's just such a great picture of the way all of us are as Christians. We are all just a combination of faith and doubt, of good and bad, of righteousness and unrighteousness. We're, we're all a bundle and a collection of the two. There's none of us who just do it right all the time, and there's none of us who does it wrong all the time. And the very simple statement is just this, every Christian is a saint and a sinner at the same time. And that applies to, to Isaac. He's doing some things wrong here, and he's actually doing some things right. And we see this over and over in the Scriptures. Remember, Moses is used by God to deliver Israel from um, Egypt. But Moses is also the guy who struck the rock and got admonished by God for not trusting in God before the people. Great victory, great failure. Uh, Mo, or, uh, David. David is described as a, a man after God's own heart, right? And we look to David as a godly example in many ways. David is also a guy who committed adultery. Think of uh, Peter. Peter comes and confesses Christ, says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. Peter's the first one to get it. Not too longer after that, he's denying Christ before a servant girl. If you're a Christian, you are a saint on one hand, and you are a sinner as well. You're both. I'm both. There is no sinner who can't become a saint and there is no saint who is not still a sinner. We have to keep this in balance. So, you know, when you do things right, yeah, don't get too proud about that, okay? <laughs> you're still a sinner. But when you do things wrong, remember, in the eyes of God, if your faith is in Jesus, you're, st you're still a saint. You're still a saint. So, there's this combination here that we see in the ungodliness of Isaac. But let's move on and consider the ungodliness of Rebekah. And this uh, is described in verses 5 through 17. 5 through 17. I'll read this now. You can remain seated. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock 
and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for you, for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I will seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, and the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. The, the ungodliness of, of Rebekah. So the story picks up, what we find is uh, when Isaac and Esau were having this discussion that Rebekah was eavesdropping, listening in, maybe around the corner, paying attention, and so she hears what her husband Isaac has said to Esau, and Rebekah hatches a plan. And she goes to Jacob in, in verse 6, Jacob, which is her favorite, remember, and he says to, she says to, to Jacob, Jacob, listen, while Esau is out in the field and he's hunting this game, skipping down to verse 9, what I want you to do is, is go and get two young goats out of our herd. So this is nearby. You don't have to go out in the field. Just go get a couple of these goats. Bring them to me. And then I, I'm going to prepare these goats and make this delicious food. And then you can take this good food to your father and he will bless you before he dies, it says at the end of verse 10, so that, so that you'll get the blessing. Now, so what's peculiar about this? Why is Rebecca doing this? Because remember the promise that God spoke about the older shall serve the younger was spoken to Rebecca. Rebecca is the one who heard the promise. The older will serve the younger. The younger will get the blessing. The younger is Jacob. That's what God's going to do. He's going to bless Jacob. And yet, Rebecca is stepping in and somehow trying to manipulate what God has already promised he was going to do. Why, why is she doing this? She knows the promise. She knows what God is going to do. She knows that God has a plan. But she doesn't seem to be content to just allow God to do it in His own power and His own time and His own way. God's made the promise, but in Rebecca's mind, uh, I'm going to step in and help God along. Uh, not sure that really God can do this by Himself. Uh, I'll do some of the work for Him. Uh, maybe He forgot. I'll step in. I've got to make this happen. I don't want to wait until whenever it is that God said He's going to do it. I want the blessing now, and so I'm going to manipulate. I'm going to control this situation the way I think it ought to go instead of waiting for God to do it the way He thinks it ought to go. I think this is just a temptation for us all, isn't it? To do God's work for Him rather than trusting Him to do things His way and His own timing. We try to control. We try to manipulate. I mean, think about somebody maybe who you're 
talking to about the gospel and you want so badly for this person to, to believe in Jesus, you want that person to be converted, and maybe you're resorting to some pressure techniques or something to try to get them to believe. Friends, listen, you can tell a person about the gospel, you can pray for that person to receive Jesus. After that, it's out of your hands. You can't hurry it up. You can't hurry up conversions. It's up to God's Spirit. God does it as He wishes. You have a responsibility. Tell people about Jesus, pray for them. But you can't convert them. It's out of your hands. And this is something that seems that Rebecca has kind of forgotten. There are certain things out of her hands. Uh, think of uh, pastors. I know pastors sometimes um, wrestle with the temptation to try to make their churches grow faster than it's happening. They're not content with the amount of people that God has given them. So they might resort to some techniques, some gimmicks that perhaps aren't pleasing to God, perhaps aren't biblical, but they want to force it. They want to get it to go faster than God is willing to do it. Look, the growth of a church is up to God. He will bring the people that He wants to bring. He will sanctify the people He wants to sanctify. He will save the people He wants to save. I'm not saying we don't have any responsibility to do things the best we can, but we can only do what we can, and then we have to realize that's all I can do. I think one person said, you know, we ought to pray like it depends on us, but live like it depends on God. You do what you can, but then you rest in God's perfect time. And there's also maybe an issue sometimes with parents who see their, their children, and the children aren't maturing maybe quite as much as they would like. They're not coming along spiritually quite as much. And so sometimes parents want to get their fingers in it, and they want to do something in their kids' lives that only God can do. I heard somebody describe it this way, is that sometimes parents want to write their children's testimonies for them. God's going to write their testimony. It doesn't mean you don't love them. You teach them the gospel. You set a godly example. But you can only do so much. And, and Rebecca is trying to do too much here. She won't trust God to do things His way. Well, how does Jacob respond? We, we would hope maybe that Jacob would respond to Rebecca's plan by saying, Oh, Mom, that's a horrible idea going to dad and trying to trick him like that, plotting against him, trying to deceive him. What are you thinking, mom? Uh, but no, that's not what he says. In verses 11 and 12, really all Jacob is concerned about is getting caught. What's going to happen is dad's going to feel me. Remember, dad's blind, okay? I did make that real clear, but Isaac is blind, so he can't see who's in front of him. But uh, Jacob's concern is that dad's going to feel me. Uh, we're told that, that Esau came out hairy and Jacob came out smooth. And so if Isaac feels one or the other, he'll be able to tell who's who. And so uh, Jacob is concerned about this. No, no worries, though. No worries. Rebecca's got it. She's thought it through. <laughs> She's thought about this plan. Here, here's what we're going to do. I've got some of Esau's clothes at home, verse 15. You can wear those so you'll smell like Esau. And I'll also take some of the goat skins that you're bringing that we're preparing for uh, food, and we'll put that on the back of your neck. And so when he reaches out and touches you, he'll feel hair and think you're Esau. And apparently this is enough for Jacob. Okay, good. So reduce the risk that I'm going to get caught, so let's do it. So here's Jacob, the great patriarch. We'd hope maybe that he would perform a little better, but he falls right in with this plan. And so as we observe this, I mean, it's just, you know, your reaction as you look at this is, should be just this. What, what a mischievous, devious, 
manipulative plan this is that Rebecca is coming forth. What a schemer. What a, what a manipulator. She's in the godly line, friends. So we have a, a warning here, you know, th- th- this is not the way God's people are supposed to act. Uh, this, this is not an example for us to follow. We have to read the Scriptures carefully. Sometimes the Scriptures give us stories and examples so we'll know what not to do. Um, we hear a lot in, in this culture, you know, we live in this post-Christian world, and, and we're told very often um, that people aren't really responding to the gospel like the way they used to. Um, they, they've tried it, and they don't like it anymore, and so we have to approach them in a different way. And people are not going to be coming to church very much, and church attendance is down, and so lots of discussions are going on. How, how are we going to reach the world? And certainly we continue to preach the gospel, as we always have, but, but I would say this. One, one thing I think that's going to be very important for Christians in the coming year, and it's always been important, but maybe more so now, is that we be people who are not like Rebecca and Jacob. That is, that we be people who uphold a standard of integrity and honesty and godliness before the world that people cannot deny. That, that's what we're called to do. We, we should be people, as Christians, we should be people who we do what we say. When we promise something, we do what we say. When we go to work, we do our work as excellent as we possibly can. We are known to be people who work hard and do good work. We're we're people who admit our mistakes. We humble ourselves and acknowledge we did it wrong, and we apologize to people that we don't even like because we want to uphold a standard of godliness. We're honest. We tell the truth even when it hurts, even when it might lead to a loss of some sort. We're Christians. We're God's people. We act differently. Um, I took our van to um, the garage a couple months ago, and I wanted new tires on the van. Um, I was convinced that the van needed new tires. And so I went to the guy at the garage, and I said, please give me four new tires on the van. And he said, well, let's first of all go out and look and see if your van needs new tires. And he took me out, and he took a look at the tires, and he says, there's plenty of tread on here. You don't need new tires. And I said, wonderful, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, he could have very easily just said, hey, new tires, sure. I'll charge you $500 for four new tires. I'll get the money and send you out the door. But he wanted to be honest with me. He lost a sale because he was honest with me. Now, I have no idea if that guy was a Christian. I don't know. But... Shame on us if non-Christians are acting that way and Christians aren't. We ought to be people known for our honesty. Here's what uh, Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the ungodliness of Rebecca and Jacob here set an example of, of what not to do. Uh, but let's think a little more about Jacob, the ungodliness of Jacob here. Uh, as the text comes to an end. Verses 18 to 29. Let's pick up where I left off. Verse 18, So he, that is Jacob, went in to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you've found it so quickly, my son? 
He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, and know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him, that is, Isaac blessed Jacob. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate, and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments. That's Esau's garments. And blessed him and said, and here's the blessing, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So, <clears throat> Jacob follows through with, with the plan. He, he goes and he speaks to, to, um, to Isaac, puts on the, the hairy clothes, the, uh, the, the, the goat skin and, and Isaac's clothes, and, and takes the food and, and goes there in verse 19, right before Isaac, and just gives a bold-faced lie. I am Esau. Um, you know, a little later... Isaac's not so sure about that. Ask him again, are, are, are you, verse 24, are, are you my son Esau? Yes, I am. I am. So two bold-faced lies uh, from Jacob to Isaac. Now, uh, Isaac's not dumb. You know, he's recognizing, yeah, some things aren't really uh, adding up here. First of all, how did you get here so fast? How did you do that so quickly? I thought I'd just send Esau out. Uh, and then what Isaac says is kind of funny and kind of tragic. Yeah, the Lord blessed me. And boy, how easy it is, isn't it, to rationalize our sin by just claiming that God favors it somehow. I mean, that's what really enables us to get away with anything in our own conscience. If we can convince ourselves that God says it's okay, and that's what Jacob is doing here. But Isaac goes on, and uh, uh, he feels uh, Jacob, and um, he, he notices the, the hairiness, and it feels like Esau. But verse 22, the voice isn't quite right. So all of Isaac's senses are being used here. You know, he doesn't have his sight, but, but he does have his touch. He does have his hearing, and he hears the voice. It's not quite right. He, he does have his sense of smell, and so he, he smells Jacob, and, and that seems to add up. Um, there are some things that don't add up, but, uh, you know, I guess Isaac is just trusting that his son's going to be honest. Are, are, you really, are you really my son? I am. And Isaac believes him. And Jacob is a liar, an absolute liar to his own father. And so Isaac is just totally convinced. And he says, okay, well, maybe not totally convinced, but convinced enough to give the blessing. And so that's what we see in verse 27. After he smells the garments, he blesses him and says, and then verses 27 to 29, uh, kind of a, <clears throat> a lengthy blessing here we're not going to get into. But if you just go to the end of verse 29, cursed be everyone who curses you, blessed be everyone who blesses you. That is a repetition of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2, and 3. What God said to Abraham is, whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse, Abraham. And so here is Isaac taking those same words into his mouth and passing the Abrahamic blessing on to Jacob. 
having been completely deceived. So there's more to this story. We don't have time to go through it. Say so We'll pick it up next week with the, the second half uh, of this story, but l- let's just uh, conclude by kind of wrapping this up by, by asking this question. How in the world is God going to bring about His plan of redemption when the people He has to deal with are rebellious Isaac, manipulating Rebekah, and lying Jacob? doesn't really have a lot to work with. <laughs> but God said he, he's, he's, he's going to do it, right? I mean, I guess a basketball coach and the team doesn't do well, the coach can always say, I don't really have the players, or our players are young, can always blame it on the players. That's why we had a, such a bad season. Um, here's God. Is God going to have a bad season because He has these incompetent people, people whose lives are marked by mistakes and failures, and misjudgments, and miscalculations, and sins, like you and like me? What's the answer? How God's gonna, how, how's God going to do it? Here's how He's going to do it. By absolute, utter, and total sovereign grace. This whole Bible is about grace. It's about what God is doing, not about what we're doing. It's about God taking the bad things we do and turning them into something good. It's about the sins of humanity being incapable of overcoming, thwarting, or interrupting God's plan of grace to those He loves. Friends, there is nothing that you can do, no matter how bad, that's going to stop God from loving you. There's no way we can stop His plan to redeem those He's chosen to redeem and to fulfill all of His promises to His people. That's grace. That's worth rejoicing in. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, including your mistakes and misjudgments and sins. He works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Just think of the cross. What, what a failure that must have seemed at the moment when there's the Messiah hanging on the cross, dying. People probably thought, wow, what a mistake that was. And yet, what did God do? He took all of those sinful efforts to put Jesus on the cross and put them all to shame by raising Jesus from the dead and showing that He can use our worst deeds for His good purposes. That This is the hope that we have in the gospel, (laughs) friends. I don't mean to excuse your mistakes and your sins, or my mistakes or my sins, but we shouldn't allow those things to paralyze us with fear, but rejoice instead in the grace of God. Remember what Jesus said. He said, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. In other words, I came not for the godly, but for the ungodly. And here is the first step to becoming a Christian, friends, admitting your ungodliness admitting your sins, your mistakes, your failures, and calling out to the name of Jesus for salvation. And the promise is if you do that, you will be saved. So do that if you haven't, and then trust God by His Spirit to develop godliness in you until the day that He comes again. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You that it is inspired by Your Spirit. We thank You, Lord, for grace that is written all throughout the pages of Your Word. Lord, would you please give us hope 
in your grace and in response to your grace, Lord, help us to be diligent in obeying and following you wherever you lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's